Okay. Hi, I'm David Kukoff, author of Children of the Canyon and Los Angeles in the 1970s, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine. And I'm with Michael Fallon. Hi, yes. Um, this is Michael Fallon. I'm the author of Dodgerland, with decadent Los Angeles and the 1977-78 Dodgers. And I'm also the author of Creating the Future, uh, Art and Los Angeles in the 1970s. Well, it sounds like you've got a bit of quite a good a bit of overlap that I talk about, Michael. Can I ask you uh, just getting started here? Um, obviously, Dodgerland uh, has a strong personal connection for you. How did your telling a family story become a tale of four toms within the greater context of the city's baseball team during that period? Well, I you know the germ of the idea came from a book. Both actually, both of my books came from. Uh, reading books about um, history and uh, and about Los Angeles. And the Dodger, Dodger Land came because I was reading the, the story of the 1978, uh, sorry, the 1977 New York Yankees, Jonathan Mahler's mm-hmm. The Bronx is Burning. And mm-hmm. having grown up in Los Angeles in the 70s uh, and having been burned twice by those the New York Yankee <laughs> teams, as a Dodger fan, I... Um, I started thinking about, well, this might make a story that I could tell. I could tell the opposite side of the story. And it wasn't, it wasn't just to me, Jonathan Mahler's book wasn't just a baseball book. It was a, it was really a social history book. And I started Mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, all the things that the forces that were happening in New York in that time that he put into his book um, and worked in multiple narratives and, that's how my book developed as well. I started thinking about the social forces that were happening in Los Angeles as I was growing up and the things that I saw. And I tried to piece together a narrative that made sense, either kind of focused on baseball uh, and was also kind of a response to, you know, the, the New York side of the story from the 1970s. Hmm. Okay. Do you want to do you want to take the lead and ask ask me something else, or yeah? Sure. Related to that, um, you know, I, I I was reading Los Angeles in the in the nineteen seventies, and I, I I loved the book from the start, um, from the Thank first uh, first essay, and uh, you know, it was so all encompassing, and it you know, it included some of the things that I was talking about, plus more, and then it reminded me of things that I that I remembered, uh, you know, from my childhood. Um, but one of the questions I had related to, you know, the origins of, of my book, you know, I noticed a couple of times the, the New York LA dynamic came up in the book. Um, you know, uh, Woody Allen uh, and Annie Hall got mentioned mm-hmm. at least mm-hmm. tw- more than once, as I recall. And <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, I, I think that was a big issue in the 1970s because that was the decade that it was clear that, LA was going to become the second largest city in the country. And, and yet there was kind of a, you know, the cultural status of LA was not really existent beyond Hollywood yet. And, you know, I don't know if this is something you, you've thought about it or, or, and also as somebody who hasn't lived in LA for 20 years, has this dynamic changed? Is there still sort of this, this inferiority complex, uh, you know, is there, or, or what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because there's both a, I have both a personal and what I think will be a socio, hopefully a sociological take on that. Um, personally, I grew up in a house with two very disgruntled ex-New Yorkers. Um, 
my my mother made it abundantly clear that that this LA thing was just going to be a temporary stopover. At which point she was going to hightail it right back to, you know, the real city that she had been, you know, you know had had a had grudgingly left um, to come out here in search of, you know, my, my father was in television, so uh, this is obviously where we had to be. Um, and so growing up, and and just a full confession here, when you mentioned the uh, the hated Yankees, I have to confess that I grew up in a New York household in Los Angeles. We were kind of like our own little New York shtetl within West, sure. the greater confines of West LA. And as a result, grew up rooting for New York teams exclusively. So to this day, unfortunately, it's a habit I haven't been able to shake. As much as I identify wholeheartedly as an Angelino, I embarrassingly still root for these New York teams that are you know, the, the, a function of a childhood that was very much mired in this you know, we're only here temporarily. Um, and so I grew up again being, and, and there was certainly some, you rightly point out the city definitely was ripe for an inferiority complex. It hadn't, you know, it, 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 it obviously was about to become the second biggest city in the country, as you rightly point out, but it was still, still had these enormous, these, uh, and I, when I say cultural gaps, I say that on the surface. I mean, we didn't have an opera. We, we had, you know, we, we were lagging behind in all of the, all, you know, all, you know, all the checklist items that you would go down and say, well, this is what makes for, you know, truly sophisticated cosmopolitan world-class city. Um, we didn't have them. Our restaurants were kind of, you know, a, you know, we're, we're a little bit, we're a little ridiculous too. A lot of continental food, you know, some, some, you know, some of the health food, you know, crunchy stuff that we got, you know, a reputation for, but nothing, certainly nothing that was, you know, nothing world-class, nothing that the, the world wasn't taking its, its, its cultural cues from Los Angeles. And the, the, the narrative, the conventional narrative is that that all changed with the Olympics. And I think that's a, it's, it's an easy, it's an easy stake to put in the ground. It's an easy play. It's an easy pivot point to say, ah, this is when Los Angeles entered the world stage and became a, you know, international player. Um, there, the, again, it's a more complicated story because, uh, as, as one of our contributors rightly points out, LA wasn't the cultural center that New York was by those standards, but it had its own culture. Um, of which it was immensely proud. Um, it had, you know, we had we had an outdoors culture. We had we had fashions. We had we had our own kind of, you know, the, the food culture wasn't quite so obvious, but it was brewing. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of what Los Angeles was was forging its own identity. And unfortunately, in those in that time and growing up here, yes, we allowed ourselves to be something of a redhead stepchild to the bigger city in the East. That was the 20th century. What I can safely say, fast forwarding it now, is that it's very much no longer the case. You know, what you see online, you know, there's, there's a hashtag meme running around RIP New York. And I went to college in New York. And let me tell you, it's, it's a very different city now. It's richer, cleaner, and quite frankly, a lot more sterile. A lot more, you know, international money, a lot more investment bankers, a lot of people who just have a, you know, a big, you know, pied of there but don't live in it. Um, a lot of its cultural institutions, it's great bookstores, it's great dive bars, it's great little funky offbeat joints on St. Mark's Place. They're, they're, they're gone now. And a lot of what gave the city its character is, has gone with it. Um, a lot of the artists, you know, can, you know, can't afford to live there. And that's a, that's a conventional narrative, what happens when a city gets too rich and big for its bridges. Um, Los Angeles might be headed in that direction, but it's not there just yet. It does seem to be very much a forward-thinking place where the world seems to, be, seems, seems to look to to, get, to, you know, for, to, to, to pick up its, its, its cultural cues from. And um, I, I think what we're seeing now is the first time in history where Los Angeles doesn't really look to New York, doesn't care about what New York, what's happening in New York. 
um, in, in its own way disdains what's happening in, in New York and doesn't feel any way inferior any longer. Um, in fact, when the New York Times publishes these occasional, look what's going on over in LA, you know, people are actually liking it there. They're actually, there's this, there's a sense of kind of like, oh, thank you for your, you know, for your pay, for your silly, you know, two years dated you know, uh, you know, regard for us. We don't give it the same. We don't give the New York the same accord. I think it gives us, we're not quite as focused on what's going on over there because we're quite content in our own skin. And that's been a fairly recent development that I've been really happy with. Yeah, it, I mean that was my sense too, right? Uh, about what was going on in LA now, and um, you know, my first book that I wrote was was about the the generation of artists that came up in the 1970s in LA, and the reason I wrote mm. that is because um, you know there was in the art world. My my background is actually as an arts writer, uh, writing about <laughs> visual art, and um, you know, in the art world, that it was pretty commonly known that you know LA became a big city in the art world in the sixties and then faded for a little while and then sort of reemerged in the eighties. And mm -hmm. I argued that that wasn't true, that there was a lot of stuff percolating on the ground that, um, you know, there's, you know, there were, there were a lot of institutions that were developing. There were a lot of big, uh, artist movements that, you know, were represented very, uh, clearly and importantly in Los Angeles. And so, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, it was, and it was funny when I went to Los Angeles for the book reading, and these these books are very small release, you know, and and uh, I went to a small bookstore uh, to do a reading. There were about thirty people, and the, um, the first question that was asked was, "Do you think LA's art world today is uh, on a par with with New York?" So I, you know, and I think it's probably a fair question because it's oh, that's always the comparison in the art world. But I just there was a part of me that thought, "Gee, is that <laughs> is that?" If right. that dynamic still exists, uh, I think probably in pocket yeah. it does. But, but you know, I think you're right. Um, L.A. is a city on its own, and it, and it stands up in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and different. It's very different from New York, obviously, in a lot of ways. But um, it it has yeah, it its doesn't, own. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's. You know, we don't feel like oh, we've got to match. You know, measure ourselves up against. You know, what, what what's going on over there. Um, sure. You know, I also, by the way, I have to tell you that, um, you know, when I, when I picked up your book and just immediately saw what your structure was and how you were going to be telling it, I was wrapped. I mean, it doesn't take, it obviously didn't take much to twist my arm to write a book about the Dodgers and Los Angeles from the seventies. I was like, okay, great. You know, where's this book been my whole life? But, um, I, I noticed that people who, what I was thinking is people who might come across this book or, you know, be, be, be browsing and judge the book simply by the title might not be aware of what a truly sociological study it is, Tim. You know, and you've already you've touched on some of this. So maybe go a little further um, in a detail. Uh, to what extent the cities and states' great historians like Kevin Starr or Mike Davis, Mike Davis, influenced your work here, if at all? Oh yeah, I mean, I've read I've read their stuff. In fact, uh, Mike Davis is really the one who inspired me to uh, mm -hmm. to write the my first book because uh, he, there's a line in his book where he says, "Yeah." art fell off in the 1970s and he quotes a few people, Peter Plagens. And, and I said, well, you know, and having grown up in the seventies and having been taught by people who were, uh, students of all the, you know, of John Baldessari and, and Chris Burden and all the, you know, all the big figures from LA in the seventies in the arts, um, you know, I had a different, I had a different view. And so I, I said, well, I'm going to write that story. Um, so, it, you know, one of, you know, at the, at the same time that I read, you know, City of Crystal and, and, you know, was very fascinated by the, the components of it and what, what he was looking at and, 
and his take. And, and I agreed with a lot of it. You know, there was a part of it that said, I can, I can refute some of this conventional wisdom that you have. So it was sort of a, an inspiration, but also sort of a, something to react against. So, mm-hmm. which is kind of the best way to, to, to read someone, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Kevin, uh, Kevin Starr's work is just so all encompassing. And, uh, you know, I've read, I don't think I've read the, the whole, all the books, but I've read many passages and and many of the passages about the 1970s, which I was focused on. um, Very, very, yeah, very compelled and very driven to, to do that sort of work um, as, as part of what I was doing with my books. Um, It's been interesting though, because it's also a baseball book. And like you say, it's called Dodgerland. It's structured like a baseball book. And um, it, you know, there's been two reactions basically to it in the, with people who've read it, uh, if you look on Amazon, and I don't know how much you, how much credence you put in what people write on Amazon, but you know, just people that I know have read it. Um, some people get it right away and say, "Oh, yeah, this was really cool. I really learned a lot about the city. I, you know, I like how you structured it. It was interesting. Your, the story of your family and its sort of struggle, the economic struggle, was very interesting." Um, and then the other response is, I expected a baseball book. This isn't a traditional baseball book, and I didn't like it. So, yeah. and I, I understand I, I, that, and I understand the the pitfalls. But I just I saw an art, article the other day that said, I think it was in like uh, the Washington Post or some big uh, publication. I can't. I wish I had kept the article, but it said that baseball books are changing. You know, they're they're definitely changing. They're, they're you know, there's a lot more room for and i think people like jonathan Mahler, you know helped helped ha- that happen and there's a lot of other authors i'd point to but you know baseball books are and, uh they're about baseball but they're showing a lot more of the culture well and and it's so unfair to say i was writing for a baseball book i mean like you know roger khan didn't just write a baseball book he wrote a, a no, book about yeah i mean he wrote literature and i mean when you know i don't understand how look it'd be one thing if you had you know, talk a little bit about like, you know, if, if, if the whole book was just about Bradley and, you know, and, and, you know, your father and all these, two, and, and, and it'd been like all these, you know, this sort and then like, he kind of had a little bit here and there, but oh yeah. And by the way, this is what was happening, you know, in Vero beach, you know, that time, but mostly I want to talk about, you know, all the, but your book very much is a baseball book. I mean, I was sitting here just, you know, flipping the pages, learning about the dynamics. I, I had no idea Don Sutton was still malcontent. I didn't realize, I mean, you know, you give us, when you talk about, you know, about free agency and how that changed the game, you have to go back and give us a little history about how we got there. And I don't understand the mind that says, I want to know less about the relevant topic here. You know, I, I just want to know, you know, as, you know, as, as I want to digest as, you know, as minute a series of bullet points, as opposed to getting the entire context of where this came from, why, you know, why it was, why it has an impact on the game and what it portends for the future potentially. And, and where, and where we, you know, how we got now, it's where we are now from the past, I, you know? So no, I would, I, I definitely get that, but, you know, and I can see why somebody said, well, I don't want to know all this other stuff. But to me, I'm like, that, that wasn't tangential. That was entirely contextual. For what it's worth. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was that was totally my my intention. So yeah. <laughs> I'm glad it came across. Yeah. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was a good it was a good research uh, because you know I sort of in one respect took the point of view of an 11 year old kid, which is what I was in that year in that 1977 season, and I was mm-hmm. trying to relate the things that I was a, a you know peripherally aware of that were going on and hearing my parents talk about proposition 13 and my grandfather talk about it. And, 
he wanted to sort of give a picture from my point of view. So it's, in a way, it's a bit autobiographical, but I had right. to do a ton of research, too, to sort of understand, you know, the context and, and, and to get voices that could could uh, relay these stories and, and, and piece it together. So it was a big undertaking, but hopefully it was successful. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, uh, in, in your book, in the work you did, what, what was... I just curious, you know, there's such a breadth of topics in the Los Angeles, the 1970s book. What was the thing that, you know, you learned that surprised you the most in the, in the work, in the work that these writers did? Was there anything in particular or any couple things that stood out? Oh God, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I mean, it's funny because in, in, in a sense, when, you know, when you cast this wide net, for, for in this many topics and you, you know you're trying to just grab as many great stories as you can and and, and this book just just you know in terms of how it came together i mean uh, i talked about it with the publisher in june of 2015 and it was in bookstores november of 2016 wow. um so everything i mean all 29 of these essays you know were assigned found ri- written um edited gone back and forth on my own piece. I had to compile completely out of screen. You know, out of thin air there. Um, it was really, you know, there were a few that were, we had a few excerpts, but not many, um, really very, like just like three, I think two or three. And, um, so, you know, I mean, every single essay, it's so hard to put, you know, to, to figure on one hand, um, they had to have, they had to consistently uphold the central thesis statement. I have, which I, I wanted to, explore the last decade when LA still had a bit of a wild west mentality. You know, you don't have, I mean, you, 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 you growing up here, you, you know, you remember what it was like here. You could ride your bike way out of the outer reach of the Valley and get a feeling that you'd kind of dropped off the map a little, you know, I went to school up oh, in Mulholland yeah. and the same, the same thing. There were, there were weird hippies and cults and strange, you know, fringe. Uh, there were parts of the city that just felt kind of uncharted and, 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 you and 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 so and and, and as, as well, there wasn't the same hierarchical rigidity that you had in East Coast and, and Midwest structure, uh, corporate structures. You could kind of come out here, and for lack of a better word, BS your way into something, as Howard Gewurz did in that great essay about how he, as a 23-year-old kid, was running the the Maharishi TV station. Um, so I wanted to get to get that across. That you know, again, the sense of like. What a frontier! What you know looked like, you know, back, you know, and, and what and what American frontier, recent American frontier looked like. A city full of all these open possibilities. Um, at the same time, so so I had to look. To, there, there had to be kind of a common bond that I wanted, and I wanted to tell stories that maybe we'd known, seen a different side of, but we hadn't seen, say, this side of it. So Gaza gave us, Gaza X gave us you know, his way into becoming, you know, we, we've read a lot about Darby Crash, the punk scene, but Gaze's journey into it that we hadn't seen before. And of course, there's been a lot written and made in movies even made about John Holmes and all the, you know, degradation that he was involved, but no one saw what he was like as kind of a fresh-faced kid who, you know, young guy who wanted to be an adult film star and was still kind of, and still didn't drink or smoke, really. Um, so, so, so a lot of familiar stories had different runways into them. Um, what was most surprising, I guess, like as you kind of pointed out, I had forgotten just how much, how, how complex and rich 
our social and artistic ecostructure ecosystems were. Um, I, I didn't realize just how just how much art was going on until I read Debbie Wax and, and Eric Alliance's piece about all the feminist art. Oh, yeah. About the, the, yeah, which which I'm sure you probably knew a whole bunch, but I knew nothing about. Um, yeah. I. You know, I had an inkling. Um, you know, I read Dogtown Z Boys, but you know, when Joe Donnelly wrote that that great piece about Venice and and how it always had this kind of this bohemian history, and it always been kind of a strange, you know, it, it had been conceived in strangeness, and so weird people flocked to it. It was called Appalachia by the Sea at one point. Um, it's just really every single essay had some nugget of of history. Or, or or social con- you know, or, or or social observations that just kind of that opened my eyes. Um, I, it was, you know, it was this marvelous this, this marvelous fusion of fun and education. You know, I, I was educated, and it seemed like I was having a doozy of a time just editing, compiling, and reading these things. And I hope that that came across the final product, finished product. So. Yeah, um, I think it did. And yeah, definitely. Well, and, and, and then just kind of off that, I mean, I wanted to, I kind of I want to go to go to something in your book where you know, the book is, you as you'd expect it to be, it's filled with such rich characters who reflect how not only baseball but the country's changing. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, maybe specifically through the prism of the changing of the guard from Alston to Lasorda. Yeah, I mean. Uh, uh, Lasorda was quite a character in the book. Um, you know, obviously he he's still a character. He's he's a larger mm-hmm. than life yeah. personality. Yeah. I mean, when I talked to I talked to a few players. I didn't get to a lot of players, but a few players. But he had a marked effect on the players' lives. Um, you know, either positive or negative. Um, you know, they. He, and in a, in a lot of ways, I sort of see him as. Um, you know, he was sort of the manager, the perfect manager of the times. And mm-hmm. Alston was sort of the perfect manager of his times. And the mm-hmm. game was changing so much in the 1970s. It was becoming a, you know, it was changing with the, the changing of the, uh, and the emergence of the baby boom in their full adulthood. Um, and, you know, they were really, they really kind of epitomized in a lot of ways uh, the seventies and how, to, you know, and sort of how you were going to, evolve into the 1980s i think i mean the, the dodgers had a reputation for being sort of a more staid um you know conservative franchise um and you know they had they had alston who was you know very quiet he was a quiet man he was he was uh you know very by the book in a lot of ways um very unflashy and not a player's manager, uh, more of a, a, a strategic kind of manager. Um, he was very good at managing his, his pitching staffs. Um, he was very good at using his, what resources he had to win, and he was extremely successful. But by the 1970s, he was very out of touch. Um, he'd helped turn the franchise around after its low point in the late 60s, and he had helped bring about this change to this new batch of young players, but he... He didn't have the people skills. He didn't have the flexibility and uh, the garrulousness. He he just wasn't in tune with the times. I mean, this was the this was the era of the uh, you know ten cent beer night and the and the disco demolition night. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. and so you know, and the players were growing their hair out and they were you know they were trying to be individuals and endorse player endorsements were growing and um, 
you know, and, and Lasorda, you know, the Dodgers were a conflict because they had, they had these individualistic players, but they were playing for one of the storied ancient franchises uh, with the, you know, the venerable um, Walter O'Malley was still the uh, owner of the team at that time. And, you know, the rules under O'Malley, under the O'Malley's were conservative and um, they didn't Mm -hmm. pay for free agents. They didn't, they didn't do multi-year contracts. Um, they, you know, they, uh, they didn't, uh, take any guff from anyone and they, uh, they, they wanted a quiet, uh, conservative team. And you had people like, uh, Don Sutton, who was, you know, not necessarily the most, uh, flashy player, but he definitely was an individual he, and he bristled under that. You had, uh, you had some uh, people like Glenn Burke, who was the first openly gay baseball player in history. Mm-hmm. Um, who, you know, loved the Dodgers because he loved being on this storied franchise, but obviously he was not treated well. Um, you had players like um, Steve Garvey, who was very conservative and very um, kind of non-flashy, but uh, was a polarizing figure in the clubhouse because they, a lot of players thought he was hypocritical, that he had this conservative view, but he was very, you know, they said he was, very, he was a very selfish player. Um, so you had this team that was very conflicted in a lot of ways and the way that it was held together and, and driven to become a world series team and nearly a champion, um, team in the 1970s was Tom Lasorda, who kind of had both, both sides. He had the, he had the garrulous kind of outward side of the, of the era, but he definitely was a, he was a company guy. He, he played by company rules. He was a, he was a, a, he bled Dodger blue. He did what the, the ownership wanted him to do but he still was able to kind of, um, you know, muster all these forces and all this individualism and still make the team click. And if, you know, yeah. knowing his personality, that makes a lot of sense. And he, I think in a lot of ways he was really the force that made this team successful, uh, in the, in this era. Yeah, I mean, you know, for all the volatility of the times, I mean, you know, as you point out, I mean, all the individuality, it, you know, to pull that those guys together, that much vaunted Dodger infield to say Russell, Lopes, and Garvey, you know, it's still one of the longest tenured, most stable, and cohesive in the game's history, you know? Yeah, and it's it, what's really interesting is they, they just, they didn't really like each other. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, I, <laughs> it's hard to tell, you know, they're they're very mum about what, uh, players don't really talk a lot about what they, what goes on in the clubhouse. And, and um, it's very rare that you get that. And I wasn't able to get, but there were glimpses of, you know, just the dissension and, um, you know, you see signs that there, you know, there are videos where uh, Steve Garvey walks up to shake um, another player's hands, like Ron Say or Don Sutton, and they turn their back on him. Uh, yeah. You know, it's you can see these little signs, but somehow it was held together, um, you know, by the force of Lasorda's personality, I think, mostly. Um, and it's funny because if the, the two players in particular that I thought, you know, they benefited a lot from Lasorda were, were Ron Say and, and, uh, and Doug Rao, who were kind of not your conventional superstar players in a lot of ways, but... Um, they had come up through the system with, with um, Tom Lasorda. He had fostered them as, as um, players. He saw the value of these players, despite that they were not, you know, they didn't have traditional tools to become superstars. 
and in, in the case of Ron Say, you know, he, he, you know, he was a very unusual player. He, he, he was not quick of foot. He was very stocky and he played in the hardest, one of the hardest positions in the field on third base. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was, he somehow managed to become a near superstar. And even though he had a great career as a player, you know, he, when I talked to him, it was clear in what he said that he did not, he didn't appreciate you know, Lasorda. I think Lasorda had this way of like fostering your loyalty and and bringing you up, but then still somehow, um, he he would he you know he would he would lose you because he was such a company guy. I think the players thought he was always on their side, but he he wasn't ultimately on their side. So there was a lot of bitterness. Bill Russell had the same story. You know, a lot of these players ended up, um, you know, they played for him loyally, but then they ended up you know, bitter, embittered about him in the end. Hmm. It's, you know, it's one of those odd aspects of the, of the team. And it's interesting to compare the Dodger team with the Yankees team, with the Yankees team in the 1977 world series. They, you know, this was the Bronx zoo team, uh, essentially. And the Bronx zoo was, was a, actually named for the 1978 team, but they, you know, they were very much individuals and they were, yeah. uh, they were spirited and they were, a lot of them were free agents or they'd come to the team through trades. And, you know, it was pointed out several times by, uh, by Howard Cosell during the broadcasts and uh, the world series broadcasts, how sort of corporate the Dodgers seem compared to the spirited Yankees, how, how mm-hmm. the Yankees had this this vibrancy, you know, and they had Billy Martin, who was more fiery tempered, and um, and he, you know, of course, Howard uh, Cosell loved the Yankees. He was a he was a, a New York team homer, but but he was right. I mean, the Yankees had a you know they had a, a different um, they definitely had some tension, but it seemed that they turned that into this kind of uh, wacky sort of. Uh, um, spirited energy where whereas the Dodgers had the tension but it was all kind of it kind of stayed inward and it all exploded in 1978 when there was a, a big clubhouse uh, fist fight between Sutton and Garvey which really unsettled a lot of people in LA because they a lot of people had no idea the press in those days didn't cover that kind of stuff very much mm-hmm. with the Dodgers so they had no idea the tensions that were underlying the team yeah no it's interesting because I mean one of the, you know, in doing a book like Los Angeles, the 1970s, I, I just, you know, you could keep, you, you, this, this could be an ongoing set of volumes, you know, like, you know, that, that would barely scratch the surface of, you know, how, how, how enormous the cities, you know, again, different, different ecosystems were that were worth tapping into. But one of my regrets in the book and in, in, in putting the book together and just turn, you know, at a certain point, it's ran out of time and also had just, you know, so much material that it had to, we had to put a cap on it was that I wasn't able, there was an essay about the Dodgers. And now in reading your book, I realized it's bigger than an essay. You know, I mean, it really did warrant a full book. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it could did, have been... Now, uh, did you, uh, yeah. hmm? Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, did, uh, did you want to, did you, was there anything else you wanted to, because we're getting a little close, I think, to our wrap-up time. Was there anything that you wanted to ask about, ask me about the book? Or? Um, well, I did... I don't know if I had a question as much, um, but I wanted to point out, you know, I, I thought that the book explored a lot of really, uh, uh, you know, of the hard social issues of the time. Um, 
in the different essays, you know, you had uh, some some of the economic issues go, and uh, of course, you know, uh, racial issues and uh, particularly with the Latino population in LA. And there's a couple articles on crime and drugs come up and, um, you know, you had the article about the porn industry and the religious cults and which I thought it's always, it's important to remember those because some of those stories I think are less remembered than they, they could be about LA. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, but I have to say that I think my sentimental favorite, um, uh, favorite, uh, essay in the, in the story is about, it was, uh, Michael Lazarus's, um, Dr. Demento. Oh, Lazarus <laughs> about, about Dr. Demento. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, <laughs> I, you know, and I well, just remembered uh, that those Sunday broadcasts, those four hour Sunday Dr. Demento broadcasts, listening to those in KMET. And it was great to get some, some more inside scoop on, on that scene and, and the, and the, the radio station. And of course, Dr. Mentor, who of course is originally from Minneapolis. So is, yeah, yep. is an interesting connection for me anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's great because there were a couple of pieces that I assigned out that I said, the, the, you know, as far as I'm concerned, again, like you, some of this was, some of this was just my personal connection slash, you know, slash uh, nostalgia for slash sentimental memories of, um, but I, I said no book that I edit about Los Angeles in the seventies would be complete without Dr. Demento and the Z channel. Yeah. Yeah, the Z channel, the yeah, Z channel oh, was, was my, was, yeah. Oh, well, Z channel was my best friend growing up. So I, so I found a yeah. friend and I said, look, I'd love to have a contribution from you. Do you want to write about the Z channel? And Matthew said, Oh, hell's yeah. And so, and of course, yeah, you know, park. And, but Michael, um, I, I approached, I, I just, I, I knew Michael just to, to friends and asked him, you know, and I was, I, I loved the screenwriting work he did. I said, do you want to, you know, take a twirl of prose? You're a funny, smart, very you know, incredibly articulate guy. And what he came up with really exceeded my expectations because it was not only funny, it was also really poignant. Um, <clears throat> which I thought was really was just it was was such a was some wonderful curveball at the end about his mother and that story about his family's history. But but yeah, I mean that, it, it's it's important to remember that before there were viral videos, there were Dr. Demento tapes. You know that we that we would tape and pass around to each other and and, oh, yeah. and, and compare and and the idea that that so many teens and and tweens, you know, we didn't have, we didn't call ourselves tweens back in the day, but that, that so many young people would be bonded by one, a radio experience of all things. I mean, you think about like what was going around back then. Yeah, sure. Music, you know, fan magazines, movies, TV shows, but a radio show. I mean, there, there was nothing like it. There's no other radio show. And, you know, there, you know, there were, you know, there were, you know, there were obviously DJs we liked here and there, but a radio show for hours and that one hour at the end of the top 10. Um, and a radio show that focused on novelty songs, no less from, from long ago. So it wasn't like we were, you know, getting, you know, it wasn't Rodney on the Rock cutting it stuff from England or whatever. This was, you know, um, this was a look back at, 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 you know, at the world's, you know, stranger, weirder musical history, and we ate it up. And um, yeah, it, 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 there's really quite. I mean, I guess there, you could say there's been plenty of things like documental system, but just that experience at times seems so unique. Um, there, there wasn't, there certainly wasn't anything like that in our, in our, in teen culture for us. Um, I mean, who, you know, who here, who, who of our generation couldn't probably sing the, you know, the entirety of fish heads at the drop of a hat. <laughs> I know I could. Yeah. <laughs> was, yeah. Yeah. Course, I, right. I definitely had that experience as well. I think I owned a whole collection of his taped 
funny fives and funny tens. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, do we have time for one more question? Sure, sure, go for it. I did have, a, or a comment, or just a you know something to respond to. I I was reading the the the, the essay that you uh, edited the the um. The one on uni high is this, is this where mm-hmm. you went to high school? Yeah, and no, um, no, you didn't. Okay, Actually, um, no. I, you know, it reminded me a little bit. I don't know if you've read um, whatever happened in the class of '65. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it was it was a it, it you know it's about a specific aspect of this high school for the most part. But I don't know if you if you'd had any thoughts about that. It, um, and that was a class of '65 was more generational. Um, but it was also a, a Southern California high school. I think it was Pacific Palisades. Yeah, I, I didn't. I no. I, I wasn't rooted in any, any any other work. So that essay came specifically from a personal challenge. Um, when I was reading a book, an oral, an oral history about Darby Crash um, years ago, um, I, you know, I, and I I'd always kind of had a fascination with the punk scene because I was such a conservative, you know, scared kid growing up. I didn't defy my parents. I went to a good high school. I did my work. I, you know, was, was easy and unrebellious, at least in high school. Um, but I was always kind of fascinated with these kids who just flaunted the rules and shaved their hairs and mohawks and went slamming in punk clubs when they were 15 and 16 and had sex and did, you know, all kinds of ended drugs. And so I, I've, you know, even to this day found myself always reading about, you know, what, what was happening back then and seeing what I, you know, missed out on. And I, I was reading this oral history about Darby crash and it was sort of the stuff you kind of would expect. It wasn't really shedding any much new light on what I didn't know. But all of a sudden, I came across uh, this passage where they talk about this bizarre high school he'd gone to. And my ears perked up. I said, wait a minute. That's the story here. That's the takeaway from this entire from this book. There was, a, there, was a school, there was a school within a school at uni high that just went completely off the rail, fully sanctioned by LAUSD. And where the, the, the place it went to, where they were actually using Aston Scientology principles and, 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 using the, and, and doing these crazy games that teach kids, you know, like, you know, birth experiences and, 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 but, and, and, you know, it just, it just seems so nuts. And I was like, well, at some point, if I ever get the opportunity to write, to write, you know, a piece of good journalism, that's what I want to shed light on was because I, I'd never heard of it. Nobody I knew had ever heard of it. And yet it was obviously you know, hugely, it was around for eight years. It was hugely, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it clearly impacted a lot of people who had gone there. Mm-hmm. So when I was, so, so I, through, through, you know, when I was putting the book together, I, I was, you know, went from person to person. I finally was introduced to Paul Rossler, who, and it's, you know, an older punk rocker guy. And he put me on the, on the school's bulletin board page on Facebook, where I, got 15 people who immediately said, I'd love to participate in this. And I sent out interview sheets and compiled the oral history. And I said, it's got to be big. This thing has to, this thing isn't just a, I write a couple thousand words about it. It really wanted to be told in its own, in the words of people who'd gone there. And then it was ultimately excerpted in Los Angeles magazine, which was great because they apparently had always wanted to do a piece about IPS, but they never had the right person or the right approach brought to them. Um, but I, you know, I, I can't say that that was, uh, that was to me, yes, I, I can see the comparison now that you bring up whatever happened in the class of 65, but that wasn't rooted in any tradition for me. That was just its own. I said, this just feels like it needs to be an oral history um, because mm-hmm. I just had never, ever heard a story quite like that school. Um, and, I, you, you know, seeing it so typical at times in terms of the trends and the, you know, and, 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 the, and the far out of the ideals, but at the same time, 
um, you know, so so it ended, you know, but but it ended um, where it should have, which is that like like a lot of countercultural experiments, which it was it was it was ultimately kind of done in by its own aid, by its own excesses, and 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 that seemed like an all together sadly too familiar ending for what really in, you know in the sixties and seventies started off as really noble experiments. Um, one thing I will say though, one 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 sort of one, one coda, um, the the the, the the students who went there, at least the ones I spoke to, I can't speak to obviously the thousands of kids who've attended there over the years, but I talked to what I felt was a pretty healthy cross-sampling of people who had attended there. And to a man and woman, uh, they all credited the school with giving them, uh, you know, teaching them a level of emotional intelligence they don't think they would have gotten elsewhere. And they said to this day, it really helped shape them into the people they were. I don't know that I can say that the same of any educational experience I've ever had. I mean, I went to good schools my whole life, but I can't say thanks to Columbia University, I am the man and writer that I, you know, I really kind of am who I am despite where I went. You know, it wasn't like any place or any teacher or any, any institution really had any major impact on who, on who I am today. Um, but that school seemed to, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's poignant too, because that's what, that's what they, uh, I mean, they teach that emotional and social intelligence now directly in schools. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that that wasn't done when we were going to school. There was no awareness nope. of the importance of that. And so that's sort of, a, a, you know, ahead of its time. Yeah, and very much so. I mean, maybe, and maybe a little extreme and certainly, certainly controversial. And let's face it, about a good 70 to 80% of those tactics would not fly now in the days of helicopter yeah. parents, and, you know, PC and no time, you know, no laying hands on the kids and don't, don't hurt my kids feelings and safe spaces and whatnot. But, uh, you know, it was, it, it's good that, 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 that a place like that existed. I think I, I would hope that down the line that, that, you know, people could look and, and pick up some, some, some important lessons, uh, from, from what the, from what they were trying to do over there. Cause I thought it was pretty cutting edge and, and absolutely fascinating. And maybe that answers your earlier question about what was my biggest surprise was I was expecting to get a story from my own piece of scandal and Scientology and screwed up ex egos over. And I, what, what I wasn't expecting was just how much credit these people gave to these really forward thinking educators for shaping them into, you know, being such thoughtful, you know, challenging, you know, challenging, interesting people. So, so anyway, you have it's, a, uh, not to, uh, what's that? No, what are you going to Do you have like, do Sorry. you have another book that's going to follow up on this? Uh, I sure or? hope so. I, I sure hope so. Um, I would love to keep doing my, you know, whatever small contribution I can make to the canon of, of Los Angeles stories. I'd love to, I'd love to keep the ball rolling and, uh, and happily, I think that the collection is, 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 is moving pretty well so that there might be an appetite for, for, for what we did here, it just it seems to um, it seems to be reconnecting with people, and um, and uh, so yeah, I, I really hope to. It'll it'll depend on the publishers, uh, you know, needs and my schedule, and us being able to to you know to to you know move forward with something else. But yeah, I sure I sure love to. So this was a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, well, just as my last question, you what are you working on now? Um, I'm slowly well. You know, I, my my basis is sort of a more contemporary cultural and social history. So I've been doing a lot of research about the 1980s, and I have about three 
early 1980s, you know, that Reagan era, that early Reagan era. So I kind of, you know, I, I learned a lot about the de- decade of the seventies. I studied a lot about what was happening, the forces that were affecting. And I, I kind of want to bring it forward a few, uh, you know, a few years. Um, I have about three book ideas that are percolating, but I'm just doing my collection of research and, and material gathering right now. Suffice to say, you made a big fan of me, and I am looking forward to going through your other books and looking forward to reading what you come up with next. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, and I, I love this yeah. book, too. I'll, I'll, hopefully there's more uh, you know, about L.A. I'll, I'll always pick it up. I hope so, too. All right, well, let's wrap up by uh, reminding everyone who we are. Um, I've, I'm David Kukoff, author of Children of the Canyon and Los Angeles in the 1970s, Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. And I'm Michael Fallon, author of Dodgerland, Decadent Los Angeles in the 1977-78 Dodgers, and a book on L.A. art called Creating the Future, Art in Los Angeles in the 1970s. And it's great talking with you, Michael. I look forward to meeting you IRL, as the kids say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It was great to, great to talk with you as well. Thank you for having me.